This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Dr. Dana Bradford is a neuroscientist who is passionate about giving health autonomy to some of the most vulnerable people in our communities. She did a very inspiring TEDx salon talk about connected health systems, and she joins us on Hope Breakfast today. Good morning, Dana. Good morning. Dana, what the heck is a connected health system? <laughs> it gives people ownership over their own health data um, and it also streamlines the systems so that one person, any person in that system can connect in and have all the information available to them. Zana, so this, this example, sounds like an interview we did recently uh, about IkiBot, which was a, a, a little robot designed for kids where they could keep track of their own blood temperature, medication distribution, and then you've got clinicians who have access to it. But because it puts it in the hands of the kids, the kids have some ownership of their health system. Is, is that kind of similar thing? That's, ex- that's exactly what a connected health system is. So in that situation, instead of the clinician having to talk to the child about, you know, what's happened over the last week and um, what it, what what's going on, they can just look straight into the information that the kids are keying in at the time. Mm. And they so they have a really complete record of exactly what's happened over the last week. So instead of spending the first half an hour of a consultation going back and relying on memory and self-report, they've got this really accurate, rich data right in front of them. Uh, and so they can go straight into, they can use all the time in that specialist um, consultation to look at next steps going forward do, do we need to tweak treatment um what you know is there an update to the prognosis is that where do we need to go from here it's fantastic uh, i was reading that you you've recently done some work with residents in uh, aged care uh, can you tell us about mrs l and the sensors you installed uh, mrs l mrs l was my um, you're not allowed to have favorite participants mrs l was absolutely my <laughs> favorite participant she was a participant in a Smarter Safer Homes pilot study that we were running in an aged care facility. It was home monitoring using non-invasive sensors. So we set up each of the independent living units with a suite of non-invasive sensors, about 30 of them. So they were sensors for mobility, for temperature and humidity, um, for appliance use, And so they gave us some really rich information about what was happening in the home. We could see how much the person was moving around. We could see whether they were preparing meals. We could see whether they were attending to hygiene and dressing themselves and showering and that sort of thing. And what it it allowed us to do was be predictive about and proactive about implementing services before they were required rather than afterwards. So if somebody's always prepared their own meals and then we see them dropping off, then maybe that's when we need to bring, you know, bring meals on wheels or something like that. And I don't know if you have meals on wheels in Sydney, but, you know, meal provision, Mm. bring that in. Or if somebody's having trouble with mobility, maybe we need to talk to them about, is it time for a walker? Um, And certainly we we also had um, health um, devices in there as well, so blood pressure uh, and uh, temperature and weight, and that gave us some indication as to when they might need to move to a higher level of care. Now, 
when Mrs L was involved in the study, we were just testing the sensors. We didn't have any... We weren't monitoring them in real time. We just wanted to know, did the sensors pick stuff up? Um, and do they work, essentially? Um, we didn't have a business model in place. We didn't have a response service. So the information didn't go to anybody who'd be looking at it and going, we need to do something about this right now. Uh, one night, Mrs L suffered a, a stroke and um, she was found a couple of days later. She later died in hospital without ever regaining consciousness. So... What we wanted to do was go back through the data and see if we had had a response service in place, could we have detected that event early enough to do something about it? Now, we went back through the data and there was no doubt for any of us that had we had a response service in, we would have found her sooner than she was found. She had a buddy system with the neighbours where she'd open a set of curtains in the morning that says that she was she was up and around. And when the curtains stayed closed for two days running, the neighbour alerted facilities and that's how she was found. Had we had a response service in, we would have found her much earlier because we would have known whether or not she was prone to sleeping in or spending days in bed. We would have known what time she would normally get up and if she hadn't been up within an hour of that, then somebody might have gone round for a check-up call. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have known if she'd been unwell lately and, and maybe that's why she was spending time in bed. Um, so we certainly would have found her earlier. But whether or not we would have found... We know that there's a two-hour critical window with with stroke that you know you really need to find people within that two hours. Whether or not we'd found her within that time, um, we we will never know. But even if we had her, the stroke she had was quite severe. There was a panic button right beside the bed that she didn't touch. She didn't leave her bedroom at all the morning of the stroke. So we know that it was quite severe. She may have required lifelong care. Mrs L was fiercely independent and not the kind of woman that would have appreciated being fed and bathed and all Mm. the rest of it for the rest of her life. Mm. So if we were going to save her life, we needed to save her quality of life and that meant finding, um, knowing that the stroke was coming prior to the event and not not after. And so when we went back through the data, we actually found there was a 10-day window over which her... Um, behaviour changed significantly. So her mobility was reduced in all rooms except the bedroom where it was increased. Her meal preparation was significantly reduced um, and in fact in the last three days she barely used the kitchen at all. Um, Her uh, bathroom use was also significantly decreased. She didn't use the bathroom in the last three days. Now the toilet was in the bathroom Mm. so that in and of itself is a you know glaring alarm. She also had um, some changes to her health status that were um, predictive of stroke. So she had fluctuating blood pressure. She had um, a, a low pulse rate, um, and she had polycythemia, which is a high red blood cell count, which is also associated uh, with with impending stroke. And she also had a low body temperature, which is quite common in older people, but it's associated with stroke severity. So 
um, you have that the lower your body temperature is, the more severe the stroke is when you have it. So um, she certainly had a whole lot of factors. But had we been streaming that in, had we had a connected health system, and we'd been streaming that information through to a specialist, they would have seen some um, definite red flags there in the ten days prior to her death. Now. Some people ask me, could you have um, implemented an intervention at that point that might have prevented that stroke? And the answer to that is is maybe. But the other thing that we could have done is alerted her family that she was going downhill. Mm. And even if even if that's all that had happened, even if she'd still had the stroke, but the family had had the opportunity to come visit the weekend before and seen her or at least known that there was a change in her um, in her household behaviour, they might, that I think um, brings closure to the family instead of thinking, I wish I'd known or if only I'd made that phone call or that sort of thing. So maybe we could have prevented the stroke, maybe we could have informed the family, maybe there were other things that we could have done had we had a connected health system. I feel like we're actually getting fairly close to that. I'm thinking to myself, like, as I I listen to all of this, I have a device on my wrist right now that measures my heartbeat and probably has the capacity to measure measure temperature. I've got a phone that sits in my pocket that is connected to a wide range of resources that I would use, look at, and leverage, which means that you'd, you'd almost have access to all those metrics now for the for the regular punter, integrating that into a healthcare system, you go like you know. Part of me goes, I'm all about the metrics, so yeah, mm. go ahead, connect me into the healthcare system and alert me if there's a problem. But then there's a lot of people who really value their privacy, right? And go, well, I don't think I want integrated real time metrics on everything going on in my life being viewed by someone else. Absolutely. And that's exactly where we're at. So there's a lot of complexities in moving forward into that kind of um, monitored health. And I think that that's why we really need to have the key line with the individual. So it needs to be their choice around which data they share with whom. And and that, I think, is going to be um, a key to going forward. That's, that's going to be the, the game changer. The health system that we currently have any of those big systems are resistant to change just in their very nature. And so um, so there's big overhauls in the health system that are going to be required for this, these kind of new technologies around health. And that includes genomics. That includes this, you know, um, device-led health. Um, and so there's changes that are going to be required at the health system level. There's changes that's going to be required at the individual level. And that's going to be around, like you say, what we're willing to measure that we want to know and what we're willing to share with other people. Your mobile phone currently has the technology to be your personal psychological counsellor to mm, um, maintain your well-being. So mm. we have, you have, the, the phone currently has the capacity to know if you're starting to play, you know, um, movie songs on YouTube, it could, it has the capacity to send you a pop-up message saying, 
hmm, I hear you playing some morose songs lately. Why don't you go visit Fred? He always cheers you up, you know, this sort of thing. But do we want that? Like, do we, mm. do we really want our phones to be... Do we want to know how much our phones know about us? I guess is the question. And, and like you say, some people are really keen for that and others go, no way. <laughs> Before we uh, say goodbye, Dana, I'd love to know from you where you see connected health systems in 10 years from now. What, what would you like to see the technology doing in 10 years' time? My part of it is all around that health autonomy. What I'd like to see is um, people using technology seamlessly implemented in our lives in a way that works for us as an individual that supports our own health goals. So if I want to... um, if I want to have information about my blood pressure and my heart rate, and if I want to be prompted around exercise, then I want all of that to be available. Um, by the same token, I also feel it's really important for people to opt out of that. So I'd like to see technology providing greater choice around health options and facilitating health autonomy, giving people the resources at their fingertips in the palm of their hand to choose their health pathway. And I think that's the best way to take the pressure off the healthcare system because, quite frankly, I don't think it's going to support a, a bigger the kind of population size and the health issues that we're going to have in 10 years' time. When my dad was dying of cancer, you could see it for him. He just wanted to own some of the process, you know. So he had a, a he bought himself a watch that could monitor his heart rate, right? And that was part yeah. of him saying, I want to be able to control some of this. Yeah. Um, and I really felt strongly after that moment that, like, one of the big challenges was dad is he had to forfeit the rights of everything. And that was really hard for him to do, like in in relation to, you know, uh, Mrs. L, fiercely independent and, and wouldn't yep. appreciate someone else bathing and washing her. That was my dad. Like, you know, yeah. he get he gets to a point where he's like, I don't want to do this anymore because I can't do anything with myself. Like, you know, yeah. send me off to see Jesus because I just don't want to be here. And that, you know, as a son, that's really hard to process through that. And all I could think was just just give him some damn control over his healing, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that especially with cancer, it's really important that you have everything done to you during chemotherapy. And I, I speak from somebody who's had uh, quite a long bout of chemotherapy. So I'm, I'm speaking from a patient survivor. Yeah. Um, and everything's done to you and you don't get any choice about what you're doing. But imagine if you had a mobile phone that allows you to book your own appointment for when you're going to have chemotherapy instead mm. of them telling you it's on this day at this time. If you go, no, actually, two o'clock works better for me. And I think with, with cancer, it's really, really important that you have that sense of control because it's... Um, you, we know that attitude is one of the biggest uh, things in differences between survivors, and I'm, I'm not talking about your dad here, yeah. but for young people with, with cancer, attitude is one of the really determining factors in how well you cope with chemotherapy and your survival rates. And a lot of that attitude has to do with owning that 
this is what's happening to me and I'm I'm in control of this and I'm going to overcome it. And I think the way we do that is by putting the tech into people's hands. But we're still a long way off a lot of that stuff because we've got to mesh it in with the system, which means that overworked health providers need to not tend to the people who are right in front of them with serious health issues and instead tend to potential systems that might work in the future. And that's really hard to ask them to make that choice, to work on something that we don't even have in place yet. When they've got people in front of them that really need them. And that's why I quite like working with the healthy and the well-being because they're, they're not, um, they're, their issues aren't as urgent. So they can spend the time playing with tech and seeing whether or not it works. And then we, so we trial it in healthy people yeah. and then we implement it with people who aren't so healthy. So mm. I think to me that's the way forward. Fantastic. Hey, thank you so much for talking about uh, connected health systems and Tell you what, it's it's exciting work that you're doing. So thanks for sharing your uh, your passion for it and also all the the great work you're doing, Dr. Dunner. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on your show. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.